Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where we have unusually in-depth conversations about the world's most pressing problems, what you can do to solve them, and when you shouldn't take your books back to the library. I'm Rob Wiblin, Head of Research at 80,000 Hours. Today, I'm talking to two of our advisors who are constantly speaking one-on-one to people about how they can have more impact with their careers. Michelle was last on this show for episode 75, Michelle Hutchinson on what people most often ask 80,000 hours, while this is Habiba Islam's first appearance on the show. If you listen to some or all of this episode and decide you'd like to get advising from Habiba or one of her colleagues, our one-on-one team is a bunch bigger than the past, and so it has capacity to talk to more people than it used to. You can learn more about what the service can and can't offer you and apply to speak with someone at 80,000hours.org slash speak. Of course, the service is free and you can learn more about what it can and can't provide and apply to speak with someone at 80,000hours.org slash speak. We're splitting this episode up into two parts in a naked attempt to get you to subscribe to our new show called 80K After Hours. So if you want to hear the second half, which covers advice for younger people, the impact of the one-on-one service, uh, the biggest challenges the one-on-one team faces, our reaction to Agnes Callard's essay against advice, and the pros and cons of making people more ambitious, then just search for 80k after hours in your podcasting app. That new show is going to include more experimental content, article readings, chats within the 80,000 hours team, interviews that we do on other programs, and more besides. So far on that feed, you can find an interview with another of our advisors, Alex Lawson, who was a teacher for many years, and who talks about how to get the most out of being a student. There's also a reading of the article, Be More Ambitious, A Rational Case for Dreaming Big, If You Want to Do Good, read by Habiba and written by Ben Todd. And finally, there's an interview with Kieran and me talking about the philosophy of the 80,000 Hours podcast, among a range of other topics. The last few weeks have been pretty anxiety inducing for me, with Russia's invasion of Ukraine raising the possibility of escalation to a great power conflict between two major nuclear powers, or of increasing numbers of future invasions of smaller countries by their larger neighbours. We're currently working on some episodes to explore those topics and what, if anything, can be done about those threats, so stay tuned for that. I can see from our downloads that we have at least a few dozen listeners in Ukraine, and I hope that those folks are uh, finding a way to stay safe and their loved ones are as well. Without further ado, I bring you Michelle and Habiba. Today, I'm speaking with Michelle Hutchinson and Habiba Islam. Michelle has a PhD in moral philosophy from the University of Oxford, where her thesis was on global priorities research. Since then, she has filled a range of roles at Oxford University and given what we can, but she currently does one-on-one career conversations for 80,000 hours. Habiba studied politics, philosophy, and economics at Oxford University before qualifying as a barrister, working as a management consultant at PwC, as a senior administrator at Oxford's Global Priorities Institute and Future of Humanity Institute, and now is also doing one-on-one career conversations at 80,000 hours. Uh, Thanks for coming on the podcast, both of you. Great to be here, Rob. Thanks for having us. I hope to talk about your most common suggestions for people who come to you for advice and how well our career advising actually works. But first, what are you working on at the moment and why do you think it's important? Maybe Habiba first. Yeah, most of my job is doing one-on-one careers conversations with people and following up with them over the next few months as well. I also do some other stuff alongside that, a little bit of kind of sourcing leads for people in the EA community who are hiring for really promising roles, like sort of like mini versions of headhunts and doing kind of helping with other sort of strategy things for the one-on-one team, like working out whether it's a good idea to like send people books before we talk to them, that kind of thing. But most of it is the careers conversations. How long are the conversations these days? Is like about an hour? And has it always been about an hour? Uh, so we, we schedule something for 30 minutes, but we try and hold the full hour just in case it's useful to go on a bit longer. 
And I guess the, the team's grown a bit recently, right? So we're like able to actually uh, do conversations with a bunch more people than we used to be able to. Yeah, it's very cool. I've been doing lots, like I've been really trying to ramp up the amount of calls that I've been doing this year. But we also have uh, recently a new advisor has joined the team, Alex Lawson, which has been great. And he's got up to speed really fast. And we also will have more people joining the team soon. Yeah. Michelle, you, you were last on the show about two years ago to, to, to chat about advising and the most common yeah, advice. Yeah, two we, years ago. I think, oh, I think well, the conversation might have been two years ago. I reckon there was a little bit of a delay. We were, Kieran and I were a little bit slow getting that episode out. So it might have been, <laughs> might be 18 months ago from the perspective of listeners. But I think this might, you might be the first person to come on the show for a third time. So not well, privilege. You're, you're, you're beating out Will and Toby and uh, Spencer. So <laughs> 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 Congrats. Yeah, what's changed in advising since that episode two years ago? Well, one of the big things, as Habiba mentioned, is growing the team quite a bit. So we've hired three new people, Habiba being the first of those, um, and Matt Reardon is about to join us. We've also gotten a bit more information about how useful the conversations are and in what particular ways they're useful that we'll be talking about in a bit. What kind of data have you gotten? Is it like a more more survey data or finding out, I guess, maybe people's careers are coming along a bit now so we have a sense of how they're, how they're playing out? Yeah, a bit of each. The thing I was particularly thinking about was doing a user survey, getting a sense of what proportion of people's actually changed their careers based on having the conversations. And then others in the community have also done surveys and passed on their results to us to try and give us a slightly less biased sample. Yeah. Habiba, Romy, how many calls have you done this year? I, I can't remember the exact number, but I, but I remember being taken aback and somewhat disturbed. <laughs> it's like, it's around, I think I'm about 390 uh, at the moment. Okay. So, okay. So about like two every workday, maybe like more than that, two and a half a day. So I, I tend to schedule them so that I do like weeks that are particularly intense and then mm. some weeks that I have off and do them in kind of rounds, which works like that. I like to try and make it like an advising sprint in inverted commas where I'm sort of doing a lot in one particular week. Yeah. How do you maintain your, your energy through that? I mean, I only have to talk to one person a week at most. Uh, you must usually, I guess, occasionally, occasionally two people. But <laughs> and that's a but struggle for you, I, isn't it? Yes. Hopefully, this isn't too taxing. I'm going to go home exhausted and <laughs> sleep, sleep twelve hours. Yeah, I guess maybe you just like people more than I do. So I think I do find talking to a person to be like particularly energizing. I think it's certainly like a bit of my personality that if I've got someone in front of me, I will like put in a lot of energy to be like cheerful and engaged and sort of talking to them. But it is, it definitely does get kind of tiring if I do a lot in one go. Hence why I sort of schedule having mm. some weeks off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are there any kinds of calls that are more tiring? I think if I'm not able to help someone that much, that is, I think, a frustrating experience for them and then a sad experience for me. But we actually we actually are really good, I think, at trying to find the people that we can help the most to talk to. So this actually doesn't happen that often. Huh. So uh, you've gotten better at kind of screening people at the application stage to figure out whether the conversation is going to be useful for them or not. Or we're just getting loads of really mm. talented, altruistic people applying. Mm -hmm. Okay. We also try to be as careful as we can to moderate people's expectations well. So the mm. last podcast really helped with this, I think, because we can send people the podcast beforehand and they actually know what kind of careers advice we're going to give. It's particularly useful with younger people who have a huge number of different options and would really like someone to be able to cut down the options pretty specifically for them. Mm. And we just can't tell them which thing is the best thing for them to do. It's just a kind of difficult time of life, particularly in some ways, if you're very talented because you have so many different options and, and it can feel overwhelming. Yeah. So it's the main thing that people might want that you can't do. You're just like being very directive and saying, no, don't do this. Do do this. Yeah. I think that's the biggest thing that comes up that, that people would like us to be able to do and we can't. What are the kinds of people who you struggle to help out the most who you either have to maybe say, we shouldn't do a conversation just yet, or maybe you do end up talking with them and then finding it's not, not, not all that they hoped it would be. 
Yeah, I guess one of the things is that there's only so many areas that I actually know that much about. Mm. Uh, and so as a as a service, we have some levels of specialism in the kinds of things that 8,000 Hours talks about a bunch. So some of the kind of existential risk reduction type career paths, paths that might relate to that kind of thing. And I just tend to have a lot less knowledge around some other areas that people might be really interested in. Mm. Uh, and so there I'm just like maybe less able to help them out. I think some cases we also find that people just have really good plans already. Some people come to us having thought through a lot of the different considerations, talk to a bunch of their friends and having been proactive about reaching out to other experts and getting materials and things. And in some of those cases, we basically can just say, seems like a sensible plan. Go mm. do it. Yeah. <laughs> cool. I guess, yeah, are people happy or sad to get that advice? <laughs> I suppose it cuts both ways slightly. Yeah, I think it depends a lot on on the person and how much they expected. Some people actually quite like getting the affirmation because what they're really worried about is, am I missing something crucial here or something? And talking to someone who has kind of similar values to them and also really cares about helping them get their career right, saying, I can't think of any other considerations that you're missing, can be pretty reassuring and get them energized to actually go for it, even if it feels like a bit risky. Whereas other people were really feeling like, their plan is kind of speculative still and involves trying out things and applying for quite a lot of things. And they were really hoping to to get more suggestions or something more directive. Yeah. Yeah. Let's push on and talk about the kinds of things that you both find yourself saying reasonably often. I guess uh, last time we did a bunch of these, uh, yeah, most most common pieces of advice given, which it sounds like it was useful because you could just direct people to that. <laughs> as, as we hoped, you can just direct people to that, that episode ahead of time and uh, don't, don't have to say it again and again. Uh, but yeah, I'm curious to know what things might have changed or what, what new advice you have or whether perhaps there was anything that we were mistaken about two years ago. Yeah, are there any new, new or different themes and uh, show up fairly often these days, uh, Habiba? Yeah, I think a lot of the stuff that Michelle said on the previous podcast really still uh, rings Stands true. Stands the test of yes, time. Yeah. I think so. But I think one of the things that I'm trying to do a lot, like consciously try and do more on calls over the last few months, has been focusing a lot more on the course prioritization part of a call, which you might think is not a standard part of a careers advising call or like a process. But actually, I think it's surprisingly important for thinking about what to do with your with your career. I think particularly people maybe have a tendency to think particularly about the skill set or the thing that they've like have most experience about most recently and then think forwards from that to sort of the kinds of roles that seem open to them right now but I kind of I try and like encourage people to think really big picture about their career think about what are the biggest problems in the world and like consider what kinds of paths might actually be working on those problems just particularly because there actually might be ways that they're just not considering that they are able to actually contribute to those and so when you start from that kind of perspective this sort of big question about well which problems do I think are the most important actually becomes like a really important question as part of your career decision so I think I've like relatively tried to put more emphasis on that part of the conversation. Yeah, I think this is also a big value add of ours because it's the part that most careers advising services don't offer at all. Um, Mm. They're very much trying to talk through what are your next possible steps and how are you going to get those? And they do less of this bigger picture thing. And then also they're um, just much less focusing on the how can you have the most impact in the world side of things compared to what will be most suited to you and how will you have a career that you enjoy, which is Mm. very important important also but this neglects this whole other piece mm-hmm. yeah well i guess yeah we're just talking about that way more than other career services indeed right. like maybe infinitely more <laughs> <laughs> so 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 a common situation is someone comes in and they're on like a particular path and they're like what's the next step that i should take within the thing that i'm existing on and you're, you're more inclined to say hold up a minute like let's let that's back up and think about the bigger picture and like what are you actually trying to accomplish down the line 
Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think, for example, there are just so many examples of people that I know who have really, really impactful careers. And like the undergrad that they did was just something quite unrelated to that kind of thing. Like you can have studied physics or history or like whatever it is undergrad, but be incredibly successful in like things that aren't specifically directly related to that. So I think it's just really helpful for people, particularly I think earlier on in their career to like think more ambitiously about where they might be able to contribute. Can that be a difficult issue to broach, I guess? So people are coming for concrete ideas on next steps, perhaps, and you're saying, well, you've been like worried about problem X, but like, have you considered not worrying about that so much and instead doing something quite different? Yeah, I think it's this is part of the kind of setting expectations at the beginning of the call. Um, mm. And hopefully, yeah, Michelle's previous podcast talked a bit about this, about what we actually do on the call mm. and just sort of setting people's expectations and kind of actually asking people for permission at the beginning of the call to say, is it all right if we like dive into that for a little bit before we get to some of the concrete careers advice? Um, we have a document that we get people to fill out before, mm. uh, which specifically asks people for their definition of positive impact and some thoughts on their ranking of problems. So that is a good segue into discussing that. Yeah, and I think this can feel quite stressful to people as well because they're coming from a particular pathway and have a sense of what that looks like and what continuing on it might look like. And also they feel like they've put in a lot of effort to learn the specific things that they have been working on so far, which definitely seems very understandable to me. I spent a lot of time studying philosophy and then basically don't use it at all. And it was kind of all optimized for going into academia. And then I just didn't. But in fact, it can just work out really well for people to switch, particularly if they're switching early-ish on. And I think that's quite difficult to see at the point where you've just spent three years studying economics or whatever, mm. by comparison to when you're looking back and saying, well, like now I've had a you know few years working at something that's totally unrelated to my PhD. And actually, I really enjoy it. And it's not been a problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We recently put out an episode with Carl Schulman that I suppose some listeners to this uh, might, might have heard where he was arguing, among other things, that when they're trying to figure out what problem in the world they want to focus on solving, people tend to talk, oh, well, maybe we talk too much about this highfalutin moral philosophy about like, population ethics and so on. But actually, what people like really need to guide them is just the basic empirical information about the state of the world and what's going wrong. And like, yeah, what's what are the most likely disasters and, and how probable are they? And like, who's working on different problems, that, that kind of basic lay of the land. Yeah. How do you find the split between those two things in the, in the conversations? Yeah, I... Hmm. I think we try and cover a bit of both. Like, I think the cause prioritization question involves a little bit of moral values and it also involves a little bit of empirical stuff as well. In some ways, I think it's easier to have an understanding of your own, like to, to take your own view on the moral side of things. Mm. And it's like requires a little bit more investigation sometimes to get a view on the empirical stuff. And I think both of these can seem really daunting to people to feel like they have to like fix like mm, solve, solve moral, moral philosophy, philosophy yeah. <laughs> to like work out what to do with their career and i think it just doesn't have to be that hard but yeah i think there are some like key sort of choice points that it might be it's just, like slightly easier for people to like focus on and yeah like it's a little bit of it's the moral stuff and a little bit of it's the empirical stuff i think yeah and i think one way that we can add value sometimes is basically just giving people a sense that they can think through these things and come to their own view i feel that i've chatted to a lot of really smart, well-informed people who feel kind of like it's above their pay grade to have any opinions on what the most important problem to work on is, and therefore don't end up spending much time thinking about that and actually deciding. And I think that's a real shame for their career. I was talking to one lady, for example, who has a PhD in physics from Cambridge and still felt like, oh, well, I, I'm not smart enough to get to grips with these kinds of things. And I, I just think that's totally wrong. And, mm. and yeah, getting people to think these things through can be pretty useful for their career. 
To what extent do people's decision about what to work on rest on more technical issues in moral philosophy versus just asking the basic questions of do you care about people here more than there? Or you know, how do you yeah, how do you feel about helping people in, in the future? Is it like probing people's basic intuitions primarily? Or do we need to get into the into the math of it, so to speak? I think it depends a lot on the case. And some cases, people just haven't thought about these questions too much. And they've been really compelled by some particular problem. And it's more a question of talking through the different problems and getting them to think about them. And then people might realize that although they feel particularly compelled by a certain problem, when they're actually comparing it to another one, they think the second one's more important. I think in some cases, people have some intuitions in a particular direction but haven't quite thought explicitly about those intuitions. I think climate change is one that that often elicits these kinds of cases where people might have the view that they'd prefer to help people in the present, but simultaneously feel that climate change is a particularly important problem to work on. And actually, when they think about it in more detail, they realize the reason they think that climate change is particularly important is that they think it could have a bearing on the longer run future. Mm. So in that kind of case, they do in fact have a view, but it's not quite been made explicit. Mm. And then I think there are other cases where people just in fact feel very torn. And so it's less a case of figuring out what the intuition is and more a case that they kind of know that they have intuitions pointing in different directions. And that's when it really gets into the the complexity. And we don't tend to be in the business of doing that. That's just a really hard question that um, to get, you know, an answer someone finds satisfying could just take them years. Mm. We're more trying to help people who are in the, the former two camps think through whether they, in fact, have stronger intuitions in a different direction than they were expecting or something. I think it's vanishingly rare that we really go into the like specific in depths of like mm. a particular philosophical debate. Like unless the advice, the person I'm talking to themselves has a philosophy PhD and is like really excited about this kind of issue. Like I don't really recommend people go off and read like philosophical papers and work out their own view there. I think something that can be quite helpful is checking out a book like The Precipice, which I think goes through some of the arguments in favor of long-termism or like working on existential risk in a very accessible way that I think many people can engage with and like form their own views on. Yeah. Have you ever prompted people to reflect on their values or what they want to go and solve and they've gone off in a quite unexpected direction or something that you might not advise or at least I didn't anticipate? Yeah, I definitely have been surprised afterwards. So maybe I've like checked in by email with with someone I've spoken to uh, a few months later and it turns out that they've latched onto something like quite different. At that point, I'm like, good for you. Um, (laughs) Have fun. I think the person I'm thinking of, I think this was, uh, yeah, really getting into a sort of sense of like finding their bliss in kind of like a meditation style Uh, thing, something like that. So I guess like people do come to 8,000 hours from like very different approaches to worldviews sometimes. Are there any kind of empirical facts that you sometimes throw at people where they're taken aback or it has a has a big influence on them? I think sometimes talking about AI timelines is quite surprising. Mm. Uh, so there's been some like great content and some like great research in the community on this now. And so this sort of like referring to like Ajaya's Kotra's report and the sort of median timeline of transformative AI being like 2050, I think is quite a surprising fact. Mm. And maybe the other thing that comes to mind is we have this sort of a sort of standard illustration of how much of a difference course prioritization makes is sort of thinking about like 
how much money goes into like US welfare spending and like 10 times mm. less than that going into climate change and 10 times less than that going into pandemic prevention, which makes a lot of sense to people as that that's like important nowadays, given COVID. Uh, yeah. We have a lovely graph about that on our on our start here guide on our website. Yeah, I think a thing that people sometimes are worried about more than we worry about it is overpopulation. And then some of the data on how much fertility rates have been dropping across the world ends up being fairly surprising to people. The kind of stuff that Rosling wrote about in Factfulness. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I remember I tried to write a piece on overpopulation years ago and then abandoned it because it turned out that it was a very complicated issue. <laughs> and even I wasn't quite arrogant enough to think that I'd, uh, that I'd nailed it in that, in that blog post. Um, that doesn't sound like no, it at all. I know, yeah. <laughs> it's maybe worth writing something because this is the kind of thing, there's a lot of like Gen Z people who are now like very worried about climate change and it does seem like this kind of idea is like really taking off that um, they don't want to have kids. And... Yeah. Yeah, if I, I had to just say one thing about overpopulation, it would be that overpopulation rather than like making things worse it just speeds things up so like it causes more rapid consumption of fossil fuels and it also causes all of the technological changes that we hope will eventually get us out of climate change to also happen sooner imagine if we just doubled the population or halved it basically it's just like history proceeds twice as quickly or or half as fast because it's basically proportional to the number of people or the amount of, that people are working rather than the amount of time that that passes and i think most people don't don't think about it that way but i think that's closer to the truth than thinking that like each extra person is a is just a burden uh, and just makes things worse Right. So presumably, which direction you think this will go is going to depend some on what you think about progress studies and whether scientific progress is speeding up or slowing down. Because if you think that scientific progress is radically slowing down, then adding more people is just going to add more carbon emissions and things, but isn't going to add as many more breakthroughs as you would want. Whereas if scientific progress is continuing apace, then this would seem less worrying. Doesn't that kind of cancel out? Because I'm just saying, well, we're going to have a particular number of person hours worked eventually. And there's going to be a trajectory of emissions and a trajectory of technological improvement. And having more children just causes that to happen sooner in time. And so it's definitely a worse situation if technological advance is happening more slowly. But that will be true even if population is declining. Uh, we'll kind of just play out the same, the same trajectory more gradually. Yeah, good point. Maybe you might not need technological advancement to like work on things like reducing carbon emissions. Like maybe you think that we have the technology and we just need to sort of make a transition. And then maybe that would be a case where if the population grows faster, that we mm. just don't have enough time. We like we sped that up without actually just having enough time to deal with it. Yeah, I think that's the best argument in the other direction would be that, that there are some things that are proportional to clock time rather than number of person hours worked in the world. And it like potentially political change around climate change could be more like that, where kind of progress proceeds one funeral at a time, perhaps, and you need like a turnover of people to get to younger generations who care more about climate change. But yeah, this is a, this is a complicated one. Maybe, yeah. maybe we'll be able to do a full episode on this uh, overpopulation <laughs> question uh, at some point. Yeah, let, let's go back. I was asking what new themes or what regular advice shows up. Is there a, is there a different thing other than um, reflecting on your values and choosing the right problem? So I guess as someone who came from doing consulting for four years and sort of working in operations, I quite enjoy talking to people who are in like consulting or working in the corporate sector or like in a, in a kind of traditional private sector job. And yeah, do find it interesting talking to them a bit about making the time to sort of think about some of this stuff and, and like, a, and think about making a career change. So I guess a few things that I often say are trying to emphasize how useful some of the skills are that they already have. Mm. I think people, particularly if they're not very well connected in 
into the effective altruism community might be a little bit distant from sort of realizing just how just how how many skills they've like already acquired and how useful those could be in various different direct work kind of settings. Mm-hmm. So there's like one thing about kind of like emphasizing how much people might want to consider like switching into something that's more direct work, whether that's like going more in a policy direction or like um, in operations or something like that. And then kind of talking a bit more about like making time for actually focusing on this kind of thing. Because I think I've been there, like being in (laughs) consulting, where I just like did not make very, like didn't have the headspace and the time to sort of think about big picture questions and let alone like job applications. And I think it's like kind of helpful to talk to people about maybe just taking some leave to think about this kind of thing or making some like goals with friends or some commitment mechanisms to be able to set aside some time or like getting involved more in the effective altruism community as a way to to like engage more with some of the ideas and like help facilitate like a move to something more directly impactful. Yeah, another thing that Alex has been noticing, he says a lot, is how important it is to think through what specific goals you're trying to aim for with some particular decision that you're making or with a particular thing that you're working on, where it can be really tempting to try to get towards too many goals at once such that you're not actually doing the best thing for either thing that you're doing. So you could imagine, for example, taking a job which has a high enough salary that you can donate a bit and also is in a sector that you think is is pretty good. So maybe it's making a corporation a bit more environmentally friendly, although you don't think that it's making it tons more environmentally friendly. In that case, you could do better to either try to go for a job at a for-profit that will earn really well in order that you can donate that money to a climate change charity or go for working at a charity where you won't necessarily earn enough to donate at all, but it's the best charity that you can find. This is obviously not always true. Often it it can be good to, uh, particularly if there's cases where you can kind of get the low-hanging fruit of two different things. But it's often pretty sensible to think through specifically what your goals are and whether there's a way of achieving them separately rather than taking some middle way that's kind of satisfying in a number of ways. So the issue there is that people are kind of drawn to a middle ground that feels like it's getting a bit of everything rather than going for like something that's extreme in one dimension and, and, and weak in another. And perhaps in normal life, it's often better to do the compromise thing, but maybe in social change, the outcomes are more in the tails and more when you like really manage to nail one aspect of a, of a career and people aren't, or like it's a little bit hard to, to make that really strong bet. Yeah, I think the impact is more in the tail and also the different outcomes can in fact be compared. So the Mm. thing that you care about ultimately is how much am I in fact countering climate change as opposed to am I using both my money and my time to Mm. counter climate change or something? I see. There's a temptation to try to have impact through multiple different routes rather than just doubling down on one that seems like it's the the one that's getting the most bang per hour. Right. Yeah, interesting. Uh, Yeah. And there's something helpful about being part of a community and coordinating with the community, which makes it, which I think should hopefully facilitate it being easier for people to focus more specifically on what's going to be their comparative advantage. Because, you know, it's it's better for, if there are two different people, for each of them to go specialize, one of them in doing the direct work and one of them doing the earnings rather than both of them to try and hedge and do a bit of both, which Mm. very much relates to the like impact is in the tails thing. Yeah, I see. So you can think of, well, I'm like to making a big bet, but like across the two of us, we're, we're, we're hedged because either, yeah. Yeah, either we're, we're trying both methods as a, as a group. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any other common themes? So 
I guess one other thing that comes up is, I guess, talking about kind of people's prioritizations around different priorities in their in their life and sort of impact is not like the only thing that you're aiming for in your career. And I think often I do just give people a message if they're struggling with mental health related things to like prioritize that, put that first. And obviously not a counseling service, don't have expertise in this area. But I do think this is something I do try and like emphasize to people and give people permission to focus on that kind of thing. And I think it's kind of helpful to have an outside person sometimes say that. Like often recommend the the podcast that we that Kieran did with um, one of the ATK staff members on uh, on their sort of own journey here. Yeah, I think that's really important. I think there's definitely some subset of people that we talk to who feel like they're only doing what they ought to if they do the most impactful thing they possibly could and spend all their time and all their money helping others. And that doesn't seem like a recipe for actually having an impactful career because you're likely to burn yourself out. And I don't think we should be in, in the business of pushing ourselves and each other that hard. I think it's very important to find a career that's actually going to be fulfilling and sustainable for you and that allows you the amount of time off that you need. And then also for us to support each other in so far as we can. And the wider world also isn't always that good at really taking seriously the amount of mental health help that people need and things. And I feel pretty fortunate to be in a community of people where people are pretty happy to talk through mental health challenges that you might have and what kinds of things you can do about them and whether it's a good idea to try meditation or try a CBT app or go to counseling and that kind of thing. Um, and I definitely want us to be, as we said, not counselors uh, and therefore pretty careful about the kinds of things that we say, but encourage people to, to be open and seek help and, and kind of destigmatize mental health as much as possible. Sounds like a trap that some people might fall into is they're like having some personal problem, like potentially a, a health issue, and they feel like despite that, they still have to like focus directly on trying to have impact right away. And potentially that can be putting the cart before the horse. Like what they need to do is deal with their, their health problems or whatever is making it difficult for them to progress in their life or, or their career. And then they can think once they've dealt with the like underlying challenges, then they, then they can get back to thinking about the, about the career aspect. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is the the sort of analogy of in an airplane, like putting on your own oxygen mask first before you then help even like the, the sort of people that you're traveling with or your children or something. That's like always that's the standard advice. Yeah, um, I guess the trap people might feel like it's self-indulgent in some way or potentially that's like a negative self-talk that people can get into that's like taking care of themselves is just selfishness and silliness. Uh, yeah, I think that's a very unhelpful self-talk. Yeah, um, yeah. And like, yeah, just like isn't going to lead to the the kind of the best outcomes in general like even if the thing that you're care if the thing that you're caring about is like having the most impact i think this doesn't this isn't even it's like counterproductive self-talk yeah i think it's also just incredibly hard when you're in this kind of mind space to zoom out i found while i was pregnant, I felt very tired and lethargic and not very inclined to work and found that kind of difficult from an identity point of view because I felt like somehow I had turned into a lazy kind of person and not like I could cut myself slack for that. And in that kind of case, it was just very directly obvious what was causing it and that it was time bounded. But it was still very hard to just say, OK, I just won't work as hard for these few months. Mm. And I think it's it's just so much worse when you have a chronic health problem where you don't know when it's going to get better and you feel like you really have to push through now when, in fact, it could be better to zoom out and say, well, this year is going to be a year when I focus on figuring out whether I can do anything about my underlying health and maybe don't even do that, but just cut myself slack and have an easy year of it. And when looked at from the point of view of a 50 year career, that's just totally reasonable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
maybe another thing that could be psychologically helpful is to think about this from the perspective of the, of the community again as like a group of people. It's like we should have some kind of trade system where people who have good mental health or like good health in any given year, they work like they, they work extra hard and push themselves a bit more. <laughs> and people who are having a hard time, they like they, <laughs> they do a trade across time where they'll work harder when when they're doing better again personally. But then this is the year when they get to chill out a little bit more and like think more about getting back on track personally. Yeah, I think being part of a community is hugely helpful. Um, and another way in which the community can be helpful is just reminding each other, you know, when when you're not the one in the difficult space, it's much easier for you to take the zoomed out point of view. I had a late term stillbirth, which was pretty difficult for me. And I was really grateful to the people in the community who were just with hindsight, I think, like very sensibly telling me to to take things easy and not having any specific expectations of what I would do and suggest a bunch of like, should I go traveling? Should I just take things easy for ages? Should I work if I actually want to? And I think having people around you at those kinds of times who clearly share your values and so aren't just being totally biased, but are saying, hey, now's the time to zoom out and look after yourself can be incredibly useful. Are there any particular important gaps in kind of the the EA space these days that uh, you're, you're excited to fill? Yeah, I think one of the things that's pretty exciting to see is that there have been a lot of new projects working on AI safety springing up this year. And often they really need really solid engineers to join the team. And I think this is a a role that people haven't quite realized is as impactful as it actually is. It's the kind of things this is sort of doing like uh, machine learning research engineering at uh, one of these, like within a sort of safety team. And I think particularly people coming from like a software engineering background, if they're interested in AI safety, maybe they're thinking particularly about going in like a research direction. I think they have to go do a PhD and go in that direction. But it's there's like that's quite a different skill set from something that you might have been working on in the past if your sort of background is in like software engineering. And I think it's well worth considering going more in an, an ML research engineering direction. So I think that's one. Yeah, I think another thing that I'm really excited to see more people doing is trying out their own projects. I think that there are a lot more philanthropists interested in our problem areas at the moment. And one of the things really lacking is people actually able to figure out which specific things need to happen in the world and go out and do them. It's much easier to join an existing organization with a mission than it is to set up your own one. But for people who do feel that 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 could be their comparative advantage, I think that could be really valuable. Yeah. Are there any kind of um, new problems or jobs or paths that are on your radar at the moment? Like, do we have flavors of the month here at 80,000 hours? I feel like sometimes there's chat about stuff on Slack. <laughs> I think, I, I guess I uh, we tried not to update our advice too radically, yeah. too quickly, because I think no one can plan your career around that. Like, you've got to kind of commit to something for many decades. But I think maybe over the last few years, there's been more interest in sort of a patient philanthropy approach. And so it's interesting to see things like uh, Founders Pledge and EA Fund setting up like a patient philanthropic fund. And maybe there's other things in this space that might be interesting for people to explore. So if people are interested in finding out more about what patient philanthropy is all about, we have a great podcast number 73 with Phil Trammell talking a bit more about this in detail. Hmm. Yeah, I'm also pretty excited about people working in government and in intergovernmental organizations like the UN. I think for people trying to have the most impact with their career, it can be easy to feel like you ought to join an organization which is specifically aiming itself at a specific version of impact because it's going to be, again, like easier to follow a mission set by someone else than joining a huge bureaucracy like 
the UK government, civil service or something. But actually, most of the work done in the world is done by, for example, world governments. And so if we're really going to safeguard the future, those are the kinds of places where people need to be. Yeah, last time we last time we spoke, we were really psyched that there was 400 jobs on the job board. We were like, go Maria, you're like <laughs> going at finding so many things. And I think we have more like 800, 800 or 900 now. How often are you able to kind of direct people to the to the job board and uh, help them find find a role on there? Yeah, it's a great resource. And I think if people are actively job hunting, it's definitely the top place that I'd recommend people go. I think often even if people aren't at a, a stage where they're literally applying for jobs right now, but they want to get a flavor of like, what is what would this path even look like? I do often just suggest specific roles so they can get a sense of what would it what would it look like if I go in this direction? Sometimes I suggest specific roles from the job board. Sometimes I just like talk about some people and like share some LinkedIn's of like, look, this is the kind of this is the kind of path that you could go for. Hmm. Yeah, I think often they're like suggesting something on the job board is like surprisingly powerful. There have been cases where people would apply for something, even if they'd sort of they'd seen it before and like considered it, but not actually applied. But when someone sort of says, actually, I just think you should go for this. Like, I think you actually could be a really good fit. Then they sort of might actually consider applying for it. And then that that can be like, it's sort of surprising to me that that is that impactful. But I think sometimes it really just does work out well. Yeah, I think that's some combination of having a specific next step that someone can take because it can just seem so overwhelming to figure out what's the best possible thing that I could do next as opposed to being presented with a concrete option that's good to go for. And then a second piece of it is that it seems like there are a lot of people who are really underconfident about what they might do and are worried about kind of putting themselves forward and and the place they apply to thinking that obviously not qualified when usually that's just not at all the case. And, and so having a second person who's more neutral say, yes, this is a very reasonable thing for you to apply for. You should absolutely go for it can really make a difference. Yeah. Are there any examples of people who've taken jobs straight off the job board after you've spoken with them? Yeah. For example, there was an operations strategy role that was going at a policy organization. And I recommended a few people who I thought would be a good fit for it to the hiring manager who then reached out to some of them and encouraged them to apply and said that like, okay, thought you were an excellent fit. And the particular person who they ended up hiring, she had seen the job posting before, but had looked at it and thought that she wasn't qualified for applying and so like decided not to apply for the role. But when the the hiring manager reached out to her and specifically said, I thought you would be a, a good fit for this, or HK thought you would be a good fit for it. Then she decided to apply and in fact was the best candidate for the, for the job and got the job, um, which I think is just a great example of, yeah. Miscalibration. Yeah, but also, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a great example of like a little nudge actually being quite powerful. Yeah, yeah. All right. I guess so far we've been talking about 80,000 hours advice at a fairly abstract level. But let's, let's try to make it a, a little bit more concrete with what I'm going to call a sampler platter of uh, plan change vignettes to <laughs> mix my metaphors. So a few like quick, quick stories of people who've actually managed to apply all this thinking in their, in their real lives. Yeah, it's just we have a Slack channel. Is it wins or is it plan changes? No, plan changes where people are constantly talking about the like amazing folks who we're advising or who are reading the website who are then reporting back that they've often made quite radical changes in their lives, which is pretty inspiring and I guess makes me feel good about making the podcast and knowing that there's people out there who actually want to apply it, uh, apply it in their lives and not just listen to it for purely for interest. Yeah, what's an example of someone who has changed their career after speaking with you who you uh, really appreciated? Um, for me, one person is Sophie, who when I chatted to was still an undergraduate and was considering a number of different options for after her undergrad, including medicine and law. And it really set herself up well to do those. 
But after reading a bunch of 8,000 hours content on pandemic risk and chatting to us, decided to figure out how she could contribute to biosecurity. And during the COVID pandemic, she actually helped to found an organization called One Day Sooner, which was lobbying for challenge trials. And she's uh, now been studying a master's at the Center for Health Security in order to set herself up well for this. And I think she's just really made a huge change in what her plans for life were and moved to a different country where she didn't know anyone in order to do this. And I think it's incredibly inspiring. And I really look forward to seeing what she does with her career. Yeah. Do you know if she's having a having a good time? Yes, I think she is. I've been lucky enough to actually meet her in person, which has been great. And I think she is really enjoying what she's working on. Yeah. yeah. Was there any kind of theme of our advice that she had to apply in particular? I suppose it's like, don't just stick with the thing that you've already been trained to do and like be willing to look more broadly. I think that and also thinking about cause prioritization fairly carefully. So starting with the lens of what global problem do I think is most important and then which of the couple I think are most important can I easily fit into rather than thinking from the more like bottom up of what have I already learned and and where might that fit in. Yeah, and I do think Sophie is is a really good example of one of these people who had always wanted to become a surgeon. This was her like life goal. Her like family and her friends and her immediate circle were all like expecting her to do this, and it was like it was the done thing for like a smart altruistic person in her community to do. And it was a huge deal to switch out of that. But I think it was just super admirable that she really took this decision really seriously. And I think Michelle helped a lot with the advising call in like helping her think that through. I think another thing to take away from Sophie's story is that one of the things that I think was quite pivotal for her was being able to get open philanthropy early career funding for people working on biosecurity research. And I think I just really want to encourage people to to apply for that kind of funding and not feel constrained by the cost of doing something like a, a master's and like in pivoting and switching careers. I think it's like, yeah, that can be like the funding can be a real enabler of being able to switch, but there is funding available in the effective altruism community and philanthropists want to want to help you. Okay. Yeah, I can't ask too many more questions or this will become a plan change story rather than a plan change vignette. <laughs> so <laughs> so what's, uh, what's, what's another example of someone who's uh, shifted their career after chatting to you guys? Yeah, so one person who was one of the very first people I spoke to was Jonas. I spoke to him with Michelle very early days because this was during my work trial before I actually started working at 8,000 Hours. And he was doing a law PhD at the time and had already kind of come across ideas from like Nick Bostrom around existential risk and AI. But after the conversation, we put him in touch with some other people in the effective vouchers community thinking about law and priorities. And he's gone on to be a key person running the Legal Priorities Project, which is this new organization that is working on research that is the sort of most high impact from a long-termist perspective within the legal profession, Mm. um, within legal research, which is, yeah, I think there's lots of ways to do this kind of research, lots of like angles which seem really promising, but it's not a very common paradigm for thinking about things in the the sort of legal research. Um, And he's also currently doing a policy internship at Google DeepMind, which is very exciting. So one of the things that's really cool about what Jonas is doing is setting up a new project within the sort of wider effective vouchers community and filling a gap that wasn't there. I think it would be really great to see more academic research projects springing up in within different disciplines. Uh, we've now got GPI on philosophy and economics, and there's the sort of the legal priorities project. And this kind of thing is, is really great. And I'm really excited to see where it goes. 
I should like I'm an, also an advisor on the legal priorities project <laughs> to flag my conflict of interest. Full disclosure, yeah. <laughs> yeah, do you ever worry that people are too keen to start their own thing? That I don't, I don't know whether it's like appealing to have the, the freedom to be managing yourself, but it does seem like a lot of people are very excited to to start their own project, maybe not appreciating quite how hard that can be. I think that's not a thing that I worry about too much within the effective altruism community. I think there's actually, on the other end of the spectrum, there's like actually quite a lot of hesitation around starting up new projects. I think many people would say that we want to shift the dial a bit and like encourage people to to try more things. I think there is a bunch of hesitation with a lot of people. I think I do worry about this, that it kind of feels cool to set up your own thing and... I have kind of an aesthetic preference or something for people coordinating and so would kind of prefer people to join together rather than having lots of different things going in different directions. But I think the thing I think here is simply that some people are underconfident about setting up a thing and other people are overconfident about it. And so, yeah, different people could do with different advice. All right, moving along. What's the what's our third one? One person that I chatted to somewhat recently was a law student in Australia, Michael, who was being relatively conservative in the types of things that he was applying for. They were already relatively ambitious, but I think he's just really quite talented and sensible. And so I was pretty keen to push him to apply for some even more stretch things. And I think he ended up finding that pretty useful. In particular, it seemed important for him to try out applying for the kinds of jobs that he thought were immediately helpful, as opposed to only ones that would help him gain skills to later get jobs that he thought were directly useful. And he's ended up being a researcher at Giving What We Can, which I think he's quite excited about starting. And I'm really looking forward to seeing the research that he produces. Yeah, what was the underlying reason? Was it just like not appreciating the school level that, that he was at or uh, perhaps, I don't know, focusing too much on career capital in the in the very long term? I think one thing that gone on was that his perception was that organizations focused on impact just got huge numbers of applications mm. and that kind of thing is well known without it necessarily being clear which people are most likely to actually get the jobs. And then it just doesn't seem at all appealing to put yourself forward for something where it seems really clear you're not going to get it. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. What, what is going on there? Where it, it just seems like there are some positions where a lot of people apply. Uh, and so like the success rate has to be reasonably low. But I guess it's just people are not super good at being able to tell whether they're the class of people who are, have a good shot or, or don't have a very good shot. And perhaps they need someone with an external view who can give them yeah, a better sense of what their chances are. Yeah, I think that is basically right. I think this seems pretty true across the board. I mean, the job that my sister ended up getting had 600 applicants and similarly seems very difficult to know if there's that many applicants, how you can really be the right fit for it. I guess talking to other people seems pretty sensible here. It feels just quite difficult thinking through your own case to get a really clear picture of this, whereas chatting to other people, they can more give a zoomed out view of how likely it is you'll get something. Yeah. Is, is there a thing where maybe some people don't appreciate that 
if in a hiring round an organization finds two or three people who would potentially be a really good fit, then they'll keep them in mind next time and maybe even like create roles sooner in order to be able to, to hire those people. And so it's perhaps more of a like threshold hiring system rather than just there's only one role available. And so if you like aren't the very best in the pool, then you then you won't get hired. Yeah, I think that's true. And also there can be network effects where people would often ask people in the same industry as them for recommendations for people. And so if someone has, you know, a couple of candidates who nearly got the job with them, they're quite likely to mention, oh, yeah, this person seems pretty good. Maybe you should you should consider hiring them. And so often going through a process like this, while very time consuming, even if you don't get it, isn't necessarily a total waste. Cool. Okay. That's three. What's a, what's a fourth plan change vignette? Neil is a great example of someone who explored a bunch after graduating before landing on what was going to be his like first main role. So he did a research engineering internship at DeepMind and other internships at Chai and FHI exploring AI safety, as well as an internship at Jane Street, looking at a more traditional kind of earning to give path, and then did a bunch of thinking between the two before landing on working at Anthropic, uh, mm. which is one of the most exciting new projects in the AI safety space. So I'm really excited about what he's going to be doing there. The call that I had with Neil was actually sort of a follow-up call when he was facing a bit more of a decision about what to do with some specific internships. And I think the thing that I did talking to him was just a bit more of like just debugging and like thinking through his plan and what his options were rather than any sort of massive kind of careers advising insights or anything like that. But I think that was kind of really useful in that one of the things that I think he took away from that was that maybe he had a bit more flexibility than he thought. He could sort of push some of the timings of something. He could maybe like create some other opportunities by reaching out through his network. And I think that hopefully helped with some of the ultimate sort of exploration that he was doing. Yeah. Yeah. Are there any other themes that that he's applying there? Yeah, I think he was thinking really broadly about different impactful type paths from thinking about earning to give to thinking about research engineering as a really impactful way of working on AI safety. Another thing that I thought was really useful is when someone is facing this like particular choice between a couple of different paths or weighing up like two different options, being able to sort of write out a document with a bunch of your considerations, ranking things based on some of your highest priorities, and then sharing it with a bunch of people whose opinions you trust and getting feedback on that is really useful. So sort of he'd kind of done that already a little bit. And I think I was partially feeding into that process. Yeah. Yeah. Looking across all of these and I suppose other plan changes. Yeah. Do you have a sense of how large a role the one-on-one team is playing versus, you know, people doing research more generally, going to EA Global, learning more in the, on, the, on their own time? Is it kind of central for a lot of people or is it like playing an assisting role as part of a broader picture? I think it does depend a lot on the person, but in general, it's going to be more of an assisting type of role. It's typically going to be helping people by getting some sense of who else they should be talking to or answering some specific types of questions they have and and suggesting some more resources to them. Sometimes doing some kind of signposting if they're coming to it with like a bunch of different possible options, suggesting ways that they could explore some of those options before going deeper, that type of thing. Yeah, I think in the past, we've mostly talked to people who haven't been as connected in with the wider effective altruism community, which I think meant that sort of relatively, this might be a more important thing for them in terms of who they're talking to about careers advice, particularly impact focused. Um, I think nowadays, even when we're talking to people who already have a bunch of connections or already doing a bunch of their own research, it does seem to be the case that sometimes it's quite hard for people to carve out an hour's time to talk to someone a bit more of just like specifically focusing on their career. It's sort of like 
socially not a thing that's very easy to do. It's like sort of saying, can we talk about, can we talk about me for like an hour or something? Mm. And so sometimes actually we can just be helpful as being like people who are going to be here to like listen to you and focus on your specific career decisions with dedicated time for that. And in particular, people with similar values to you, a lot of the people we talk to, because they're not terribly connected into the community yet, usually would find that the people they talk to about their career have fairly different priorities and a different kind of framing on what kinds of things you might do. And so talking to someone who shares your your worldview and values can be pretty useful. Yeah, I can make people feel validated or feel like it's okay to do this because they know they spoke to someone, they know someone who <laughs> broadly agrees with their ideas. Yeah, especially if, you know, someone from 8,000 Hours that they're speaking to is like the only person in their immediate circle who's saying like, yes, it's actually, it's actually like a great idea to like put impact first and go for this slightly more unconventional route rather than like the traditional route that you were on before or like that your parents did or something. Yeah, and it's particularly important if you're if you were on a fairly standard route like studying for being a doctor and and then studying public health and the thing you want to do is move to the other side of the world to work for a think tank that your parents haven't heard of or whatever seems particularly important to really check your reasoning with other people rather than just going off of your own steam. Yeah, how, how motivating is hearing about people changing their career? I suppose I find that one of the most motivating parts of my job is releasing the episodes and then getting positive feedback on them. I suppose this is the kind of the equivalent for the one-on-one team is you spoke to someone and then they like went and changed job. Yeah, is, does that similarly drive you forward? I mean, it's huge. It's really wild that like, to have a job that actually like impacts people's lives in this really significant way. I mean, a career is like a massive thing. I think it takes a while often for some of these changes to happen. So people's careers move kind of slowly. And so I I expect that I might hear more in the sort of coming years than I've already heard. But still, even just the the smaller kind of examples that I have come across so far, where people have actually like gone and done something different after talking to me is like mind blowing. I just find it so rewarding. Yeah, I got an email from someone the other day who's setting up a shrimp welfare charity and had come from working in finance and real estate and was just emailing me to say, thanks for chatting. I think it made a difference in helping me feel that this was actually a reasonable thing to do, given what a big shift it was. So it's not like I had suggested this particular thing. I just like gone through his reasoning with him and and been like, yeah, this seems to make sense for me. And it was just so nice to hear someone making such a big difference and then making such a big difference in the world and feeling that I could be a small part of making that happen. Yeah, maybe I'm getting a biased sample here, but it seems like the folks you're talking to are like remarkably open to shifting. I I feel like, I don't know, I feel like 10 years ago, we would talk to people and like the ideas would bounce off a lot and it would be like quite hard to get people to take them seriously. But now it seems like there's such a like broader audience of people who are like just interested to like quit and go go and do something unconventional. But maybe this is the minority of the of the advisees. I think insofar as that's true, I think a huge amount of credit goes to sort of like the work that university groups are doing, the professionalization around like the fellowship schemes, the existence of something like the precipice out there in the world where people have had a chance to engage with some of the ideas and start taking them really seriously. Yeah. And I think it is right that you ask specifically for people who have changed their careers a lot. Um, Is there any kind of sampling bias here? No, 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 I don't see it. (laughs) We're often, I guess, advising people to go and do things that are fairly high risk or where there's like, you know, there's some chance that they'll go great and there's some chance that they won't, that they won't pan out. So presumably there must be stories sometimes of people who have changed their, changed their plans and then it kind of hasn't worked out or they've gone back to what they did previously or they've had to switch again. Yeah, what are stories of people who've had like high variance outcomes? 
I think Sam Bankman-Fried is a really interesting case of this where he had been considering, I think, going into politics and then came across 80,000 hours early-ish on in his career and, and decided instead to earn as much as he could to donate to charity and early on got a really great job at a quant finance firm and then spun off to set up his own firm. And that seemed like a really high risk kind of strategy. And I think that there was a period where it seemed pretty unclear whether actually he would have done more good had he gone into politics. But in fact, his firm has since done incredibly well. And so now it really seems like an an excellent decision. Yeah, it's interesting. So just for those who don't know, Sam Bankman-Fried, I think, is now a multi-billionaire who started a kind of financial technology firm and is planning to give away basically all of it along like effective altruist lines. But okay, so so initially he was doing only to give it in a more traditional way. Then he quit and did a startup. And basically, at some point, it seems like that kind of fell apart, or it seemed like it wasn't going to work. And it had been a big mistake to to quit the safe job and go do the high risk thing. But then they turned it around and then created a different kind of firm that has like super flourished. Yeah, I guess it just speaks to the unpredictability of, of these things. Or I guess in as much as 80,000 hours has influenced him, it means that our like impact has been like flying back and forth with like the winds of fortune, <laughs> depending on how Sam Bankman-Fried's uh, life is going. Uh, which I guess just speaks to the, I don't know, the volatility of careers potentially, or uh, that you can be in the middle of something making all of these good bets and uh, there's like no guarantees exactly how things are going to work out. Okay, so I guess Sam Bankman-Fried is an example of a high variance outcome, but we're like regularly advising people to go and do things where there's, it's like just not clear where it's going to work out. It, like it could go really well, it could go really badly. Because like, what could we say of people who have followed 80,000 hours advice or like advice of other people influenced by our ideas where they like decided to, you know, reverse it and go back to what they were doing before, or they just had to completely change direction because it didn't, uh, the thing that they were, were hopeful would work out didn't work out. Yeah, I think the kinds of things that we're suggesting people could try out are often pretty ambitious, they're fairly high risk, and the kinds of people who really want to dedicate their lives to helping people as much as possible are often pretty perfectionist and work really hard and also care a lot whether they're actually succeeding. And so I think there are a bunch of people who try to switch into some other career only to find three years down the line that actually the thing they're doing doesn't suit them that well and and switch back feeling that those three years weren't well spent or even worse switch into something that's really quite stressful for them whether that's because they're working at a charity where everyone feels very mission driven and the stakes feel incredibly high or because they switch into some extremely competitive area where they want to earn a lot of money and then end up burning out and needing to take a a while out to look after themselves or switch into something that they feel actually isn't that impactful at all, but at least looks after themselves. And I think as a community, we need to really recognize that that happens and look after each other to make sure that people can, in general, take some risks knowing that they have some kind of safety net. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's part and parcel of, uh, yeah, if you're going to recommend that people go out and take take big risks, hoping to harvest the upside of that, then you also have to ensure people on the downside, uh, make sure that they don't then feel like failures or that they don't get social support just because their, their immediate project didn't pan out. Or I mean, a lot more people will be willing to take the risk if they know that they're going to be supported and like people are going to appreciate what they tried to do, even if it doesn't work out exposed. Right. Yeah. I think, as you say, it's not just the support that matters, but also the appreciation, the fact that we need to not just 
give shout outs to the people for whom things actually worked out, but also for the people who tried things that didn't actually work out and they don't necessarily want to be named on a podcast, but it's important in our individual lives to really bear in mind that it's actually really difficult to try out something totally different and then to have to go back to what you had been doing before. And we should really appreciate the people who gave some difficult thing a good go. Yeah, I think I'm a big believer in the fact that all you can ever ask of someone is for them to do the thing that they are capable of doing and that they make the right choices in expectation, not judging them by like ex post what in fact happened. Yeah, and that's so hard to remember. It's hard to remember after the fact and it's it's hard to remember beforehand. And I find find it often surprisingly difficult to do the thing that's highest value in expectation if I know that it could go wrong. But actually, that is what we need to do if we're going to help people as much as we can. All right, let's push on and talk about the process of planning a career. I guess you have had a lot of new pieces on that this year. Ben and Arden and I guess now Louisa have been have been very busy writing up articles and sticking them up on the website. I find it I find it hard to keep up myself. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> me too. Coming from the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're only four hours a week. Or you can run it at one point three x. Yeah, I guess there is one that I that I have definitely gotten through, which is just about a five or ten minute read that kind of summarizes the rest. I think it's called Planning a High Impact Career: A Summary of Everything You Need to Know in Seven Points, which obviously we'll stick up a link to. Yeah, what's something from the new content that you find yourself often referring to or kind of emphasizing for people you're speaking with? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of the steps of the process are like very much building on some of the advice that we've had for a long time. For example, the sort of like plan A, plan B, plan Z that you can fall back on is like a core part of the sort of planning bit of it. I think one of the things that's, yeah, one of the other things that's very much emphasized is like starting big picture with what you want out of your career and what kind of problems are the most important to work on. I think one of the bits that's that's like, I think a little bit more new and I really like talking to people about in advising calls is around thinking about career strategies. So once you've got to the point where you have like a sense of the kinds of longer term paths that you could be aiming for, like what's the way that you orient towards that? And one of the things you could do is like bet on one particular path and really like go hard on that one. Um, but that's not the only thing that you could do. You could, for example, do some more active exploration where you try and like test out different things in an order that makes sense. I think that's a particularly useful thing for people to bear in mind earlier in their career often. And then there are a couple of other strategies that you could try as well around taking opportunities that present themselves for like great career capital or impact opportunities. And I think that's just really a helpful framing that I like a lot, particularly because this idea of thinking about a career plan can be like really daunting. And mm. actually, in fact, all you need is a sense of where you're going and like some framework for working out how you're going to get there. Yeah, I certainly found it really daunting to think of creating a career plan. So over New Year, I actually went through a whole planning process with Arden. She was in California at the time. So we spent a bunch of time on calls going through the thing. And I found it really helpful because I've just not really had much of a career plan at all over the past, despite working for 80,000 hours. And I found this a really good structure for getting me to actually do it. I did find it pretty difficult at points and in particular difficult not to 
get too hung up on the details and get stuck on one section. And so it was particularly useful to be doing it together and be checking in regularly and saying, okay, we've done that part of the section. Now on to the next one. But I did actually find it both useful in giving me more of a kind of directionality over what I might want to do in future and also in terms of spitting out next steps. So one of them that came out of it was that I realized I was interested to learn more about grant making. So I ended up applying to be on the Effective Altruism Infrastructure Fund and do that as part of my self-development this year. Yeah. What do you, what do you think people find most difficult about career planning? I suppose one thing that's necessarily kind of challenging is it involves thinking about yourself, which like people can find, I don't know, it brings out people's insecurities about like, you know, what am I capable of doing? What am I not capable of doing? I mean, I, yeah, I feel very averse to making a career plan uh, and I'm not, I'm not quite sure why, but it doesn't sound like that much fun, except maybe like dreaming at the early stages about like, (laughs) what, I could be prime minister one day. (laughs) But then it seems like it's going to get, get close to emotionally sensitive topics like quite fast. Yeah, I think it feels like bragging to me almost. Like it it involves some taking yourself seriously that I find extremely difficult because you have to be thinking through what impactful thing could I do? And there's just a large part of my brain continuously being like, no, you're just being arrogant, thinking that you could have an impact, that kind of thing. So that's only a thing that I find hard about it. Yeah, and I think there's a sense in which At least from the outside, it feels like a career plan has got to be this like incredibly detailed thing that sort of sets out like, what am I going to do each year of my life to like achieve this end goal of becoming prime minister or whatever it is. And I think that's just like, that's like not a useful form of a career plan. And I think that's not going to be, that's not what the output of our career planning process is going to actually give you. I think it's, I think one of the key things that I think is really helpful is thinking about at least like getting to the stage where you've like identified your uncertainties and you know how you're going to go about trying to reduce those. And that I think is one of the core pieces that is actually hopefully really useful. And if you kind of like frame it to yourself as that, maybe that seems a little more appealing. Yeah, should we stop calling it a plan? Because that does bring to mind the idea of like, you know, a very complete set of instructions of like how you're going to do and what exactly you're going to do. It feels like more like a scaffold or kind of a set of visions or like career idea mapping or something like that. I mean, ultimately, you do want to get to some like practical next steps. So I think there is a, a very action guiding bit of it, but it doesn't need to be next steps like very far out into the future. You've got to bake in enough flexibility to be able to adapt to how the world is going to develop in the next few years. Yeah, one thing I quite like about it is that it comes with a thing that's called a worksheet and that feels much more kind of drafty and helps to some degree to set this framing of you're just trying to put a few things down on paper. Because certainly for people who are inclined to be perfectionist, we're asking these incredibly difficult questions of of ourselves. What do I think is the most important problem in the world? What job would I be most qualified for? And so there's, there's definitely, or at least I feel, a very strong pull towards, well, I'd better answer this question thoroughly. And answering this question thoroughly is basically a life's work on its own. Um, and so it seems, yeah, pretty important to find different ways of priming ourselves to be like, nope, you need to just do a quick and dirty, like figure out what's action guiding about this and what isn't kind of process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the career planning process comes as this multi-week process that you can do with a friend, for example. The second week, particularly, or the, the week that goes into sort of what you think the most pressing problems are is like quite, there's quite a lot to get through there. And I think that's, it's a tough thing to to do. I think it's worth flagging to people that you just don't have to have got to your final answer here. Like, I think I continue to be developing my views on this, like as I learn more over the years. 
but potentially if people are doing this by themselves and this feels like a point where they're getting a bit stuck, maybe that's a good time to like apply to advising or, or like reach out to your local group and sort of try and do some sort of collaboration and get some external advice there. All right. We'll come back to some more advice you have for people in, in a minute. But just before that, um, a few months ago, Michelle, you wrote this blog post that got quite a lot of views and quite a lot of upvotes on the Effective Altruism Forum called Why I Find Long-Termism Hard and What Keeps Me Motivated. Yeah, from the reaction, I suspect quite a lot of people can relate to the to the things you were describing in there. What's one reason why you find it harder to motivate yourself to work on long-termist projects than perhaps some other alternatives? So I think that helping people who are alive today feels both incredibly compelling and important because, first of all, it seems kind of outrageous, the suffering that we allow to go on these days. The idea that there are people dying of malaria for one of really very cheap bed nets and people suffering for years from worms for one of pills that are actually given out for free by pharmaceutical companies just seems like a grievous injustice. And if we don't work on that, then no one will. And the people who die will just be lost forever. And they will, in fact, be grieved for. Whereas working to ensure that people in the future, in fact, end up getting to live feels first of all, far more uncertain and speculative because who really knows whether the things that we're doing today will make the difference or not. In fact, if the things that we're doing are averting existential catastrophes, if we succeed, we'll probably just never know that that might otherwise have happened. And then also it kind of feels like surely someone else will be able to help those people unlike the people alive today who no one will be able to help in the future. So there's the irreversible loss aspect that it seems like by focusing on the long-term future, we're like losing opportunities to help people today who who then won't be around to be helped. Whereas like, oh, can't we fix the long-term in the future once the like more immediate problems are gone? Right. And I suppose, yeah, the fact that we might not know whether we've succeeded makes it like less viscerally appealing. And I guess also just empathy with people who are alive today is like a bit easier to generate than empathy for people who might be alive at some point in the future or not. Yes, I think much, much easier to generate. And then there's also something that just feels intolerably callous about letting people die today for the sake of some speculative benefit that we could have in future. It feels like really rolling the dice with someone else's life. Yeah. If something isn't motivating in this visceral, like driving way, should that give us pause about whether it actually is a, a good thing to focus on? Uh, like whether the philosophy is right? I think it probably should. I think at the end of the day, the philosophy all comes down to your intuitions as well. What is it that makes me convinced that the thing I should be doing is reducing suffering and increasing happiness? It's my intuition that suffering's bad. And so if I have some strong intuition that I should be preventing unnecessary deaths now, that's something that I should take into account. And I should at least inspect the arguments more carefully than I would if they felt intuitively right. Mm. Okay, so yeah, in as much as the conclusion is counterintuitive, it's like gives us reason to go back and check whether the reasoning is right. Or, or I suppose, I guess it depends on your meta ethics or like where you think these things come from or how you get evidence about what's right and wrong, um, how much weight you'll give to the, to the like intuitions about the specific case. Right. 
but I guess obviously given that you are bought into doing doing long-termist work you don't think that it's it's the last word like uh, how do you maybe like reconcile or how do you get to the conclusion having gone through the the intermediate step that it feels like counterintuitive I think basically by thinking further about this argument and trying to flesh out the reasons why, in fact, it might be better to help people today and why they might be, in some sense, more valuable than the people who would be alive in hundreds or thousands or billions of years and finding that I just can't find any reasons that I think are truly justifiable for having some kind of pure discount rate. Yeah. Yeah, I guess almost everyone is going to reject that the degree of empathy is a good moral guide uh, in, in, in some cases, because almost all of us find like something's disgusting that we don't think are actually wrong, or we like care more about some particular people, but we don't think it's justified. We think it's it's an unreasonable prejudice. And this is, yeah, the question is like, is this an example of that where we, we are particularly emotionally motivated by by something? And the question is, should we should we disregard that on further reflection or should we, should we embrace it and so no, no, this is a sound reason? Right. This feels like a very clear case to me that's similar to other types of cases where I have increased empathy for people who are close to me. So grievances that before my little sister feel far more salient to me than ones that before a random person in the same city as me, um, things that happen to people in the UK feel more emotive than things that happen to people the other side of the world. But I don't think that that's actually a guide to how valuable morally those people are. It's definitely some indication that I should think about ways of helping my sister more than random strangers because I'm going to have far more access to what will help her. But I ultimately think that a bunch of this is is bias rather than information. And I think that the feeling of I should help people who are close to me in time is basically similar to the feeling that I should help people who are close to me in space. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I guess you've studied philosophy, so you've thought a lot about the philosophy here and ended up deciding that maybe it would be good if you could be motivated by long-termism. How do you actually yeah, stay motivated to, to work on those projects on a, on, a, on a day-to-day basis? I think the biggest thing is putting myself in an environment where I feel other motivators towards the work that I think I ought to do. I think what that looks like is going to depend a ton person to person. For me, the biggest thing that motivates me is wanting to help out my team I don't want to let down my manager. I want to do the best I can by the people that I manage. And I want as a team for things to go well. And so putting myself in a situation where I have a lot of team members that I really care about just is really the thing that gets me up in the morning and keeps me working hard. I think there are a lot of other things as well. One of them is making concrete commitments. For example, I'm a member of Giving What We Can, which means that I've pledged to give 10% of my income for the rest of my life to the charities that I think are most effective. And that's a pretty solid commitment that I certainly right now don't plan to break, however much I feel at some particular point compelled by a charity closer to home or something. In those kinds of cases, I'll try to donate from outside of my pledged money. And so this is kind of a way of keeping myself on the straight and narrow, even when it feels tempting to stray. Yeah. I guess people like me who find long-termism motivating from the start is uh, 
Should people maybe try to like learn from the from the aspects of it that I find motivating, or am I just messed in the head and perhaps I would just be uh, taking people down the wrong path to to adopt my mindset? I think learning from people who find it intuitively appealing is actually really important. And one of the things that I find makes it easiest for me to stick to is precisely talking to you a bunch and hearing how you think about things and arguing through whether I'm actually doing the thing that I reflectively endorse. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I find it motivating on a visceral level because I'm just like, there could be all these people having such fantastic lives, like vastly better lives than I would have. And that just seems really good. And then it seems like a terrible waste for that not to exist. Yeah. Do do you get much mileage out of considering that, that angle on it? I think I get some from that. I think I tend to be more motivated by some kind of feeling of injustice towards the less powerful party or something. So the, the thing that really gets to me is that we're the ones that get to choose whether the people in the future get to live. And they have no way of influencing our actions. They're just totally dependent on us deciding to do the right thing. So I think it's the idea of all of these flourishing lives in the future in conjunction with the fact that they are entirely powerless by comparison to us. And it's just our strong moral duty to stand up for them because they can't stand up for themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that the kind of relational justice aspect is like more more motivating than the than the consequentialist one. I think for a lot of people, a lot of people find that that, that, that framing more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's something about an injustice that just feels like so, yeah, so important that it maybe takes priority over like just generic beneficence towards total strangers. Yeah, I think that's right. And when I'm having a day when I'm finding my job particularly tough and have to do something particularly stressful or aversive, I actually have a a thing written out from one of our colleagues about, yeah, that it's just really important to help the people that can't help themselves. Was this process of thinking through what you found hard about long-termism and then the way that you could motivate yourself? I'm curious about how explicit this was as part of the historically for you when switching, because I know you ran Giving What We Can back in the day when it was a global health focused charity and have now made the switch. I think it was not very explicit. The switch also didn't feel very stark to me because back before I ran Giving What We Can, I did the operational setup of the Center for Effective Altruism, which was already a very broad organization most of whose employees cared about helping people whenever they lived. And so it felt like this was uh, from the time that I began making impact, the key determinant in my career, pretty important for me. And at that point, I already was surrounded by other people. And the main motivating factor for me was working with them I do think that giving what we can really made salient to me how much it helps to have other people supporting you in actually living up to your own values. I'd come across Peter Singer when I was in high school and had kind of taken the direction of, well, that seems clearly what I ought to do and what I will never do because no one else does. And it was really only in university when I came across a bunch of other people like Rob, who were really putting it into practice that I started realizing that actually, no, this is a thing I'm going to do. I actually have to live up to my values now. (laughs) Um, And one one of the ways in which that was true was actually donating money. And another way in which that was true was thinking through what thing was most important to work on rather than most compelling to me. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think I'm mostly motivated, at least on the philosophical level, by the general beneficence thing of like, imagine that there's like an amazing party uh, and you could like make the party twice, have twice as many people and there'll be like <laughs> twice as many people having a great time. But another angle that motivates me a, a bit sometimes is I'm actually worried that I'm going to die in one of these horrific disasters and that I'm going to like live to see in my lifetime everything go belly up and society collapse because we were horrifically negligent and didn't manage to do the obvious stuff that we should do to safeguard civilization. Yeah, do you get any mileage out of contemplating that possibility? I actually don't find the idea of dying (laughs) terribly problematic to me. (laughs) The thing I do find very problematic is my husband and son dying. So I think I definitely do get some mileage out of, I would really like Leo to live a long, happy life and not to die at age 20. But I think I easily get into a more anxious than productive mindset. So I think it's actually not that useful for me to think too much um, about the kinds of disasters that could hit fairly soon and end up inhabiting the feeling of that. Because I think it could easily tip me into a feeling of being too anxious to work rather than being constructive. Mm. Mm-hmm. And also, I guess when you're thinking about getting the like motivation from like me personally being affected by one of these existential catastrophes, I think that doesn't necessarily track the biggest global problems. I think it's much more likely I'd die in a road traffic accident. Oh, yeah. It makes no sense from a, like, selfish point of view. That I'd be like, I'm going to save my life by, like, hosting the 80,000 hours podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, if I was just selfish, I should just, like, spend more money on myself rather than, Uh like, have a one in a trillion chance of saving civilization (laughs) in order to save my own life. But I I don't know. On some gut level, it's like, it it brings it home, like, the reality of it, that, like, actual people will die, like me. I guess another another angle that I sometimes find viscerally appealing is just being so mad at the stupidity of the world and like why are we doing why why aren't we spending money preparing for pandemics? It's so obvious. The arguments are so strong. Like, that is such a we're Rob such morons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you want to like fight injustice? I want to fight stupidity. <laughs> at the end of the day, we end up in the same place. Um, Habiba, you've mentioned in the past that you're motivated by long-termist work for some reasons that might be different than, than Michelle and I. Uh, like, what's what's one of those? Yeah, I mean, I think I feel some of this to some extent. I think I feel the the, the sort of impartial beneficence to make the world bigger a lot less than, than Rob does. I think I feel the relational justice thing like Michelle does. But I think even more than both of you, I think I have quite a lot of non-consequentialist instincts. I think I, think I do have consequentialist instincts, but I think I also have relatively strong instincts about wanting to be a good person and sort of act out of act out of a sort of kindness or love towards others and that being intrinsically valuable um, not just instrumentally valuable because it creates good consequences so you might characterize this as some kind of like virtuish instincts and so I think that means that there are sort of some other reasons for working on like existential risk reduction that sort of speak a bit more to some of those kinds of instincts sometimes. So for example, Toby Ord in The Precipice makes a number of different arguments for why we might care about existential risk reduction, particularly, including things like thinking about this sort of this arc of history and where we are as humanity now, and sort of thinking about the sort of virtues that we might have as a species and wanting to sort of pay due respect to the sort of the, the work that had been done by our ancestors and like pass on the baton to the next generation and also just being a kind of wise and kind and prudential species Mm. and that kind of thing I think speaks to my speaks to some of my slightly more virtuous instincts and I think I feel quite reassured by the fact that there are these other other arguments that converge on you know existential risk reduction being a good thing to do and it doesn't just rely on one specific moral theory that definitely like helps with a moral uncertainty hat on. 
Yeah. Is it mostly about the virtues of human civilization and wanting to wanting to improve those? Or is it, are there also like individual virtues that someone expresses by working on long termism? I think there's a- <laughs> the, the virtue of impartial beneficence. Perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I find it a bit hard to really feel the case that it's personally virtuous to focus on the future. I think this is one of the problems with virtue theories is that it's very easy to like, you can change the list of like what makes it onto the list as a virtue or something. But I'm a little bit resistant to sort of just like making virtues of consequentialism. (laughs) That's not really the way that I think about them usually. Um, I think it is more, I think the thing that I feel a bit more about this humanity thing is that it does just feel analogous to the reason why I care about being a good person myself is like, I kind of want to be part of this endeavor, which is us being a good species. And so I think it just like, it sort of, it sort of rhymes. It like hits the same kind of intuition. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose you could think, well, it's good for humanity to be prudent, which then requires that individuals be prudent in like managing risk, like both personal risk and risk for groups as a whole. Yeah. yeah I, I guess don't really so. understand how virtue ethics works. <laughs> but, <laughs> really wrong. But, yeah, that sounded like a thing that could make sense. <laughs> um, it certainly makes me think that at least, so I feel very compelled by arguments around thinking about the world portfolio and sort of, it seems very sensible for at least some more people who happen to find themselves in this small overlap of the Venn diagram of being very privileged and able to use their careers to help others and also like caring about helping others impartially. It seems like those people in that small group should be putting their efforts behind the kinds of projects in the world that are trying to like nudge humanity more in the direction of being like prudential and like caring about responsible and caring about future generations, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Are there any other motivations that you find more salient than Michelle and I maybe? I guess I can say, so maybe one of the challenges that I think I also feel more acutely than Michelle, I think is a little bit around a sort of prioritarian instinct or an instinct to help the worst off. And I think that that actually in some ways pushes against some versions of like extinction risk reduction, because it might seem like some of the worst off people who I might be able to affect are the people who are alive today. Mm. If you think that actually generally like life expectancy is getting better life quality is getting better in the future we expect people to be living like richer more fulfilled lives than people nowadays so it might you might think that in addition to the thing that michelle talked about about sort of people nowadays who uh, die being lost and grieved for it's also like plausibly they are actually some of the worst off people who might exist in the next few generations so i think that pushes that's like an additional reason in addition to some of the ones that michelle talks about about why long-termism might be particularly hard for someone with my kinds of my kinds of moral view. Um, I think that's a thing that, yeah, I think in terms of what, what, what I sort of do in thinking about that, I mean, one of the things that I care about quite a bit when I think about things like climate change is that the people who seem like they're going to be suffering from the effects of climate change the worst seem like they would be the people in the very poorest countries of the world who had basically no part in in causing this global problem. The the people who cause this global problem, or the, like the, the actors that cause the problem the most, are the rich industrialized Western countries who like polluted over the last few hundreds of years. And it seems that sort of speaks to this injustice instinct. I think that's very salient to lots of people around climate change. Mm. I actually just do think it's under talked about that this applies to a lot of other existential catastrophes as well. So I think, you know, you're sort of textile factory worker in Bangladesh has like caused nothing to do with the problem of misaligned AI, but they might be a person who ends up suffering as a result. And your sort of subsistence farmer in Kenya had nothing to do with gain of function research in a lab somewhere, but still might suffer quite horribly if uh, if we as a species don't consider these risks carefully and try and prevent them from being like at risk of suffering. 
Yeah. How do you think about the comparison of people who don't get to have a life at all versus the people who are alive but have lives that could be decidedly better? Because it feels a bit difficult to say, well, people in the future will have better lives if the question at hand is, are they actually going to get to live at all? Yeah, I think the answer is I feel conflicted about this. Um, I think I, I think I don't feel as strongly as Michelle. I haven't internalized as strongly as Michelle this kind of like total view where I, I think Michelle feels you would feel quite strongly that enabling people to get the chance to exist. And I think I just don't feel that quite as strongly because I think that my kind of obligations instincts mostly attach to specific individuals. And if someone doesn't yet exist, it's like very hard for that to pull on that kind of that kind of like obligation to this person instinct. And you might kind of pass that as person affecting, but I don't actually think it is. I think it's like, it's unrelated to person affectingness. I think it's much more to do with like, where do I think obligations come from? I think. But at the same time, I think I do think that a world with more people in is better than a world with fewer people in. So long as people, so long are, as people are having a great time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I do think like a longer, better future, a, lo- a longer future with more happy people in it is better than like one that gets cut off shorter. But I think it just doesn't have quite as much of this visceral and motivating kind of pull to it, which is again why I quite like the thing that Toby Ward again says in The Precipice is that he again makes this move where he switches from like thinking from the individual person's perspective to thinking from humanity's perspective and sort of makes this argument about, well, thinking about the course of humanity humanity being cut off in its infancy and not being able to achieve its potential is again like analogous to a person dying in their infancy and not being able to to live the full and rich life that they that they get to live and that second thing is obviously bad and I think I quite find that kind of like taking the humanity perspective a bit more motivating than the thing that Michelle mentioned which is like the people themselves getting to exist yeah, I think it's really interesting what different people find motivating because it's it's definitely not an important part of my moral views to have specific obligations. I basically just think that we should be working to improve consequences, but it is a strong part of my motivation to feel that I ought to be helping the people who can't help themselves. And that's most easy to feel when it's an identifiable individual that I know, but I still get a fairly strong pull from people that I can't identify or describe in any way, whether that's because they're far away from me or because they are in fact not an identifiable person at all because they're one of the people who might come into existence. Yeah. I guess, yeah, just to wrap this section up, I guess people are like motivated by a bunch of different philosophical considerations. But my guess is that more people are like Michelle than perhaps think about it when they're planning out their career. Because I, I think I feel the same ways as, as you, Michelle, that on a day-to-day basis, I'm not primarily motivated by moral philosophy considerations or even like really empathy or injustice or anything like that. I'm like going to work because I have a job. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, and like, it is good that in the broader sense, when I reflect on my life, I think I'm doing something good, but I'm more motivated by the fact that there's weekly meetings with everyone. And it's I'm, really like, just that your boss is so scary, yeah. isn't it, Rob? <laughs> Howie is a brutal taskmaster. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah. I, do you think that like most people in, in real life, like most days, this is the thing that drives them forward is that they are part of a team trying to do something and they don't just want to be sitting around accomplishing nothing? 
I think that would be my guess. And also, I think it's a bit difficult to know what motivates you until you've tried out some things. So I found it pretty surprising how much I loved this job when I started doing it because I had expected that I would find it pretty draining to have a lot of conversations with people that I didn't know. And in fact, I find it incredibly motivating because the thing that happens is day on day, I'm sat opposite from someone who's kind and smart and trying to help other people. And the thing I'm doing is trying to make it the case that they are helping other people even more. And that's the thing that really gets me in a way that I wouldn't necessarily have predicted. So I think it seems pretty important for people would just like try out and see whether the thing that motivates them is being part of a team or having some really difficult, interesting problem to solve or what. Yeah, I, I definitely think this is the kind of thing that I feel like a lot of advisees mention, like especially if someone kind of early on in their career says something like, I think I buy the long tongues argument in the abstract seems correct, but I don't really think that I could be motivated to work on this day to day. I think they are probably in most cases worrying about this somewhat unduly. I think there are actually very few jobs that involve directly working with beneficiaries and like actually seeing the impact that you're having. Like there are some like in and kind of caring healthcare professions and sort of education and things like that. But by far and away, I think most jobs involve working towards proximate goals. And most jobs have structures around them with milestones and deadlines and projects and things like that that give you like shorter feedback loops and a sense of satisfaction. And humans are just like quite good at finding meaning in the thing that you're doing, to be honest. Um, And I think as someone, so especially if someone's sort of worrying about this very early on, like maybe just after undergrad without having had a job, like a main proper job before, I think you might just be quite surprised by how hard you can work and how much you can care about just an average job. If you've been in like consulting for like four years (laughs) and like quite used to doing stuff that isn't very directly related to like your worldview and your values. I think you get quite used to the idea that like this can just be motivating for a lot of different ways. I really liked working in consulting. I really wanted to like help my clients and like do a good job for my boss, but it it had nothing to do with the thing that I was really fundamentally care about on a a moral perspective, which is why I'm not doing it now. Um, Like Mm. I was good at it while I was doing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are there any other kind of global problems that people find it hard to motivate themselves to work on, perhaps despite thinking that on some level it would be justified if they did? I would expect that there are quite a few people who think that animal welfare is the most important thing to work on because it's just really surprising the cruelty that we inflict on animals at the moment, but that they find it more compelling to help humans because society at large just isn't set up to make people feel empathy for chickens. Yeah. And I guess this links to one of the points that Michelle also makes in the post, which I really like, which is pointing out that if you yourself are finding these things hard to motivate yourself to work on, even though they are, in fact, actually the important things to work on, that means that other people are finding them like hard to work on, too, which means that overall you might expect that these things are like disproportionately neglected. Mm. And so actually, this is like quite helpful to bear in mind when you are thinking about just just how important it is for for you to maybe like work on this specific neglected thing. Yeah. I think another one maybe in this class is uh, people find it more motivating to work on cancer research to come up with better treatments for cancer than they do to work on anti-aging to like stop people from getting sick or having cancer in the first place. There's like something where it's like treating disease feels more motivating than preventing people from not being able to repair their cells as well anymore. And so they just like never have diseases in the in the first place. 
Yeah, I think a large part of that might be coming from some feeling of by the time someone's lived to old age, they've kind of had their fair chance at life and we should let someone else have a go. And a lot of the motivation for treating cancer coming from preventing people's lives being cut short in some way. Mm. Yeah, I guess it seems like often when people reflect on that, they uh, see that there's a degree of arbitrariness and like what we think is a is a fair fair shake at the at the source bottle, as Australians say. <laughs> <laughs> at least two Australians say that. I don't know. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, it's like, you know, in the past people would have said, oh, 50 years, that's a totally reasonable amount. Or like infant mortality, who cares? Infants die all the time. It's the natural way of things. And probably in the future people will live for much longer and they'll feel it's crazy that people die at 80, that that's a grave injustice. It's just all a bit like just to whatever you're used to. Yeah, to some degree. I mean, there are definitely philosophers who uh, really defend this idea that there's a fair share and it needn't be totally arbitrary. For example, it could be to do with the current average of human life or something and that it would just be a more equitable society if everyone lived to about the same age or something and that it's fine for that age to increase, but it's more important to make sure that everyone gets to the average age or something. Yeah. Fortunately, people are constantly changing identity over time because their properties change as they as they get older and their opinions change and they meet different people. So, yeah, this isn't really a this isn't really a concern because uh, all people get to live the same amount of time. No, should there be like a, a personal identity trump card that you yeah. have to play in any discussion? Like, but you're not the same person. Yeah, yeah well, that's true. Anyway, okay. um, I mean, I think another important thing that people find difficult to work on by comparison to other things is problems that they themselves don't really experience at all. And I think the fact that people in rich countries disproportionately feel a pull to work on cancer or Alzheimer's because they had family members who suffered from them at the expense of working on things like schistosomiasis, where they've just never come across anyone who suffers from schistosomiasis, is a similar kind of problem happening in the world and is something that it's important for us to pay attention to. Because I definitely feel this pull of wanting to help the kinds of problems that my family members have had. But if those of us in rich countries do that, then people in really poor countries are just going to be incredibly badly off because there's no one right down the road feeling that the badness of their disease and also with the resources to help them yeah i mean yeah that tendency can reach comical levels i suppose when people are donating to their kids school to renovate the rowing shed or something like that but <laughs> and it can feel like so visceral because it's like something that personally affects you and the, and the people in your family but i guess yeah once it's at that level i suppose people are not inclined to defend it philosophically as the most important thing but even if they find it more more appealing all right. If you'd like to hear the final hour of that interview, just subscribe to our new feed called ADK After Hours, and you'll find it right there. If you're a fan of this show, uh, the odds are pretty good that you'll love what we are putting out on there as well. The rest of the conversation covers Michelle and Habiba's specific advice for younger people, how well the one-on-one service actually works and the biggest challenge that team faces, our reaction to Agnes Callard's essay uh, against advice, and Tyler Cohen's comments on how useful it is to nudge people to be more ambitious about their lives. And if you'd like to apply for advising from Habiba or someone else on the team, just head to 80,000hours.org slash speak. The process is pretty painless and we have a reasonably fast turnaround on applications at the moment. All right. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced and edited by Kieran Harris, audio mastering and technical editing by Ben Cordell. Full transcripts and an extensive collection of links to learn more are available on our site and put together by Katie Moore. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon.